0: Good morning. Good to see all of you, to see all of the chairs. Exciting. If you're watching online, you can't tell that we don't have stacks of chairs on the sides of the room anymore. Actually, the, the sound from up here sounds different because it's not bouncing off the chairs. It's cool. Um, welcome to episode 29 of The Plan. Throughout this school year, we've been looking at the story of the Bible from beginning to end. We started with Genesis, and now we're in the ministry of Jesus. And today we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, or parts of it at least, which is unusual for this series because we've been focusing on plot, and the Sermon on the Mount is dialogue. But the truth is that you can't really tell the story of the Bible without engaging with the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I would argue that you can't tell the story of the world without engaging in the the Sermon on the Mount, because it has been the single most transformative set of words ever spoken by a human being but it also is a very important moment in the bible where jesus shows us what he uh, what he is teaching about the purpose of god's people and of humanity and so i want to i want to make sure that we hit this note and so this sermon is going to be a little bit different because we're going to be talking about uh, we're going to be looking at the sermon through the eyes of the people he said it to and so the uh, as we get into the into the coordinates we're going to be talking about the people listening to the sermon and what they're supposed to be hearing but before we get into the sermon let's let's remind ourselves of the story we've been telling so far the bible is the story of god's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence god made the world and he put people in it and he gave them the job of ruling on his behalf And then he came down to live with them, and that was on the seventh day that he called holy. That's what was happening. That's what the world looked like, and that was God's design. And then human beings messed it up, and we kept messing up, and we kept messing it up. And so God initiated this plan to restore that design to the world through one group of people, the Israelites. He gave them one specific place to live in. He gave them their purpose laid out in the law of Moses. And he came down to live with them in the temple. And the idea was that if, if the world could look at Israel, they could, and Israel was doing this right, then they could see what God wanted for the world, what he wanted for humanity. And so Israel has this mission to be God's example to the world. The problem is, the Israelites were not any better than any of the rest of us at obeying God. And so when people looked at Israel, what they were seeing was not what God wanted. And it got so bad that at a certain point, God said, the that's it. The only way I can show the world who I am through Israel is by sending them in exile to show them that this is not me. Whatever I am, it's not what Israel has become. And so Israel has been waiting around for about 500 years. Some of them got to come back into the promised land, but they're spread around the known world, and they're waiting to be restored. And that's the mission that Jesus comes to fulfill. God sends him to restore Israel and to to call them to turn away from the the ways they've been trying to be God's people and uh, to get them to repent of that and to follow God and to be who he called them to be. And so two weeks ago, we talked about how he's been announcing that as the good news. The kingdom of God is coming. That's what that phrase means. He's announcing that to Israel and saying, this is what's going on. You need to turn and repent and get on board before you end up where you don't want to be, because they're, they're on a path that's leading them to destruction, and they need to move on to God's path. And then last week, we looked at how Jesus goes around uh, b- basically restoring people into God's community and putting together this new group of people who are following him, who are living out God's plan his way, and he turns them into a family that is then meant to be, to fulfill this plan that God has for his people. Today, as we go into the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be looking at how Jesus lays out for his people what the purpose is for Israel. Usually when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we see it as a sermon about individual ethics, about a new moral law, but that's not what Jesus is doing. As we read it through the lens of the plan, we see him laying out his, uh, his platform for what it means to be God's people. And so, as we read this story, we're going to be looking at it through the eyes of the people he's speaking to. So, before I read our opening section, I'll remind remind you of how we keep our bearings in these stories. First, you're going to be looking for people. Who is this story about? Specifically, who is Jesus speaking to? Is what we're looking at. Uh, where second is place. Where is their home? Third is presence. How can they meet with God? And then the fourth one. What did God tell them to do? That's what the sermon is about. That's what we're going to be seeing through the Sermon on the Mount. So let's, let's look at the be- how this sermon came about. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now about, news about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from severe pain, de- the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. All right, so who is this story about? Who is Jesus speaking to? His disciples are the main group, they're the ones who come to him. So he's speaking to his disciples. However, he's got a whole bunch of Jews that have not yet decided to be his disciples who are following him around because he can heal people. And so they're a secondary audience. But the people he's speaking to are the people who have committed to following him and to living out his way, and he's telling them what that way is going to look like. Where is their home? Well, right now, their home is, we're calling it Galilee and Judea, because the Romans are in charge, and they've carved up their homeland however they want. And the way they want it is Galilee in the north with a a vassal king called Herod, and Judea in the south with a Roman governor. So those names are reminders to us that the Romans are in charge and the Israelites are not. How can the people of God meet with God? Where is God's presence? In Jesus. It's not in the temple. God never returned to his temple. The temple is empty. There's no ark. There's no cloud. There's no nothing inside. Uh, But the presence of God descended on Jesus so that if you want to meet God on earth, go find Jesus and you're in the presence of God. Now, what did God tell them to do? Don't write anything here yet, because they're about to find out. That's the whole point. Now, before we get into what Jesus said to this group of people, it's important for us to know one thing about the Jews of first-century Palestine that is unique to this group. It's, it, the rest of the Jews in other places were not like this, and Jews since the first century have not shared in this trait. But this is a very unique trait for first-century Jews and that is this culture that they had that was built around the temple and around their nationhood. Now, we as Americans, we have a strong sense of nationhood. And a big part of our founding uh, story that we tell is the founding fathers, right? We have these names that we all recognize that we're taught to remember in school. We have President's Day that reminds us of, of uh, Washington. And, and we've added Lincoln gets kind of the opposite of grandfathered in because he's later. But, you know, we have these people that are really important to our history, and they are... Um, that part of our founding identity. Well, the Israelite, or the Jews at this time in Judea had the same group of people, and they were called the Maccabees. The Maccabees were a Jewish family who about 200 years before Jesus led a revolt against the Greeks and actually managed to do pretty well and get some level of independence. The Greeks had said that they were, they were going to make the Jewish law illegal, and the Maccabees didn't like that very much, and so they started a rebellion, and they did pretty well. And the way the most obvious way you can tell their influence on the culture of Jesus' time is by their names. You can tell a lot by the names that people choose for their children. And they've done studies of the ancient world and Jewish cultures, and they found that there are certain names that are far more popular in first century Judea than any other place and any other time in Jewish cemeteries. And those are the names of the Maccabees. Let me me give you a list and see if you recognize any of them. The father was named Mattathias, which is also Matthias or Matthew. His sons were named John, Simon or Simeon, Judas or Jude, Eleazar or Lazarus, and the most famous woman in the family was Mary. Have you heard those names before? Fairly popular? There's 11 Simons in the New Testament. There are seven Marys. And that is a sign of how influential the Maccabees were in this culture. And so because they held, just like we hold up the founding fathers as like the American ideal, they held up the Maccabees as the Jewish ideal. And let me read you a passage from the first Maccabees. It's a book that um, they were definitely reading back then um, that tells that story. And here's how the, the revolution, the revolt launched. So the Greek king sent his messengers around to all the different towns to get them to start sacrificing to Greek gods. And so he shows up in Mattathias' town, and he gives his speech. And Mattathias has having none of it, so he gives his own speech. But then another Jew gets up and walks over to the altar to sacrifice to the Greek gods. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal, and his heart was stirred up. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. Thus he burned with zeal for the law. Mattathias cried out in the town with a loud voice saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. This is what it meant to the first century Jewish culture in Judea specifically. People living in other places, the Jews living in other places weren't quite the same way. But that's what it meant to care about the covenant. To be zealous about the law. Was you would passionately, violently defend the law of Moses and your ability to observe it. And so the the Jews believed their mission was to zealously, whenever you hear zealously for them, it means violently, defend the law from Gentiles, like the guys who were trying to force them to obey the law, and sinners, the Jews who actually give in and do break the law. That was what they understood to be the ideal uh, Jew, and the mission of God's people is to follow the law no matter what and defend it with violence if necessary. And if you were here for when we talked about Ezra and Nehemiah, you can see the connection how when Ezra and Nehemiah show up and they say, our obedience to God is defined by following all the laws and staying away from Gentiles, you can see how that would morph, especially through the experience of that war, into this idea that we need to defend the law with violence whenever it's threatened. And it's important for us to have that in mind as we go into the Sermon on the Mount. Choosing passages to cover from the Sermon on the Mount when we don't have time for the whole thing is like choosing favorite children, which for me is getting even harder, as you just found. Um, but So we're not going to start with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are wonderful. But let's, let's start here at looking at Jesus uh, giving the Jews his vision for what it means to follow God. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Well, pause there and notice something about this what what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. He's saying, You are salt. He's not saying, You should be salt. You are salt. Salt does two things in the ancient world Uh, it gives things flavor and it preserves things from rotting. Before refrigeration, salt was a good way to preserve food. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. So he's speaking to a group of people whose job is to provide a unique flavor to the world and to preserve it. Now, who is he talking to? What group of people have a unique mission that involves being different from the world and helping to preserve the world? He's talking about the Jews, right? That's the plan. That's their mission. That's what he's told them to do. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he's reminding them of what their mission is as a people and always has been ever since Abraham. So then he says, if that's who you are, then how do we measure whether you're on mission or not? It's whether you're actually salty. You are salt. The question is, are you salty salt, or have you lost your flavor? Because what good is salt if it doesn't taste different, if it doesn't help preserve the world? It, then it's just te- then it's gravel, right? It's sand, if it's not salty. So that's what he's telling them. He's saying, as a people, you should be measuring your value, whether you're fulfilling the mission, on whether you're actually being different from the world, and in a way that helps preserve the world. The next example he gives is even more clear. He says, you are the, the light of the world. Again, not you should be, not be light, but you are the light. That is a phrase that Isaiah uses multiple times to describe the mission of the Jews to save the world. He calls them the light to the nations. He says, A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do a people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's reminding them of their mission. And he's not saying, you know, be on fire instead of not being on fire. They are the light. It's a question of whether their light is visible. Because what's been happening ever since Ezra and Nehemiah is they've had their light, but they've been protecting it from the Gentiles. And they've been putting up as many barriers as they can. And now they're going around killing Gentiles, or their ideal is to kill Gentiles and sinners to protect the light from going out. So they're basically making sure that nobody can see the light. And that's how they protect it. But what's the point of a light that no one can see? There isn't a point. That's the whole reason you have the light is to help people see. So what Jesus is saying here is he's reminding them that their mission was to save humanity, not destroy them. And so if you're basing your identity around you know, defending this thing at all costs to the point of, of killing people who, who disagree with you or who, who are your enemies, you're off the mission Because you're supposed to save them. And I think Jesus here anticipates the objection that people always make to that kind of argument. It happens today. When we talk about the fact that we need to be, you know, our mission is to save the world, and so we need to make sure that we are actually reaching people, oftentimes the objection will be, ah, but isn't our mission to obey the commands? Isn't the mission actually to follow the law? That's the assumption, and so then... You're saying that the law is not important anymore. You're saying that we should reach people instead of following the law, and we should just abandon the law. And Jesus says, "'Do not think that I have come "'to abolish the law or the prophets. "'I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. "'For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, "'not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen "'will by any means disappear from the law "'until everything is accomplished.'" Now, Jesus makes some very interesting and important word choices here. He says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. But notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, I came to obey them. He says, I came to fulfill them. And then he says that none of it will be taken away until everything is accomplished. And notice he also, he doesn't just say law, he says law and prophets. Because what Jesus is talking about is fulfilling a story. He is talking about, if you remember when we were looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, the fact that God gave us the law for a purpose, to accomplish a mission. And so Jesus doesn't just talk about obeying the law like like staying within the lines. He is talking about fulfilling the mission that the law is meant to point towards the purpose, the reason why God gave the law. So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I also didn't come just to merely fulfill it and to like really emphasize the lines that everybody has to stay in. I came to lead us to fulfill what the law was here for in the first place. So he sees the law as leading to a mission, that same mission that he's been talking about. You can't separate being light and keeping the law. Be, keeping the law is meant to be how you are a light to the world. If you're keeping the law in a way that's obscuring the light, you're doing something wrong. So he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, who is Jesus talking about when he brings up the idea of setting aside commands? Now, I always imagined that he's talking about people on the opposite end of the spectrum from the Pharisees and the the law. Like we would call them Hellenists. There were Jews who were saying, hey, let's not keep the law. It's not that important. We can basically mold it with Homer and and um, and um, Plato, and it'll all be fine, and we'll just you know. I always imagine that's who he's talking about. But he tells us exactly who he's talking about. It says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the ones who are setting aside commands. Now, wait a minute. I thought they were the ones who were really meticulous about the law. Well, they are. But the thing is, they want the law to lead them in a direction, or they want the law to lead them in a different direction from the way it actually does. And so they're famous for using legal logic to say, well actually we don't need to keep this rule because this one's more important. There are a couple of debates that Jesus has with Pharisees where he points this out, he says you're moving, you know, you're saying this you're you're making it so people can just follow part of the law and not the other part. But keeping with this Maccabees theme, I can give you another really good example. The first thing that the Maccabees did when they started their war, said so they go up into the hills and they're starting this war to defend the law, and then they hear that another group of rebels got attacked on the Sabbath, and they were completely wiped out because they refused to fight, because you're not supposed to fight on the Sabbath. So what do you think the first thing they did was? They got together, and they decided that they, could, that they would allow themselves to fight on the Sabbath, even though it violates the Sabbath commands. The very first thing that group does is, we're going to fight this war uh, to defend the law, but we're we'll make an exception here because otherwise we'll we'll lose. Clearly, if we follow the law, we'll lose this violent war to defend it. What they're not considering is the possibility that maybe the reason that's in there is to... Like, if you have to break the law to defend it, then maybe you're not approaching the law the way God intended you to approach it, right? You're not actually learning from the law if you're shaping the law to go in the direction you want. And so Jesus wasn't telling them to abandon the law. He was calling them to fulfill the purpose of the law, when he says don't set aside the commands, he's saying don't mold the law into something that you want, into something that's a way for you to keep the Gentiles away or something that, that uh, sponsors this war that you want to fight. Actually follow the law and the law will show you how to be a light to the nations. And so Jesus then gives them a series of examples of what it means to fulfill the law rather than simply obey the law. Because the, the Maccabees and the Pharisees and all these Es were good at going up to the line, and knowing exactly where the line was. So for instance, he says, you have heard that it was said long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Here's the difference. When the law says, do not murder, following the law, says, okay, but what, what do you mean by murder? What, where's, is, is this murder? Is this murder? What if, what if he's sacrificing to an idol and I'm really angry in favor of the law, right? I'm really zealous. Can I kill him then? Is it murder? And you come up with all these, you get right up to the line, and Jesus says, that's not the point of the law. The law isn't, the if the law says danger this direction, it's not, it's not saying, hey, come as close as you can to the danger. It's saying, hey, go this way. This is the direction that I want you to go in. He says the law is pointing you in a totally different way of dealing with people. It's not get as close to murdering as you can or kill as many people as you can without counting in murder. He says, no, it's, it's actually about, don't, you shouldn't even be controlled by your anger. You shouldn't even be letting your anger dominate you and, and destroy relationships. What you should actually be seeking is the opposite. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. You shouldn't be seeking violence and seeking, what's the most I can do to somebody before I get in trouble with God? You should be going the other direction, saying, oh, I should be seeking reconciliation, instead of violence. So fulfilling the law means seeking reconciliation instead of violence. When the, when the law says don't go this direction, you should go in the other direction. Another example Jesus gives is you have heard that it was said eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. This is in the law and it gets a bad rap today. We will, people will often say I, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. It's important to remember that in the context this was a limit on what people could do because they were in the habit of like, oh, you took my, my eye, I'm going to kill you. Or you took my tooth, I'm going to take your leg to make sure you don't come after any of my other teeth, right? And so Jesus or God was limiting them in the law of Moses to say, you can't take more than, you were, than was taken from you. You don't get to escalate things. You don't get to escalate things um, to satisfy your anger. Only take what was taken from you. But the way the Jews used that was to say, all right, I'm going to take every single penny that that will allow me to take. I'm not going to stop until I've taken a drop of blood from them for every single drop of blood that I lost. In fact, when Mattathias, the father of the Maccabees, is dying, he gives his dying speech, and here's how it ends. You shall rally around you all who observe the law and avenge the wrong done to your people. Pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. Pay them back in full. Every single thing they've done to you, you do to them. God has given us this boundary. We're going to take every single cent we can get out of it. But that's not what the law is meant to do. The law is not meant to give you a line and say, get as close as you can to it, without crossing it. Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. There's a couple of things about this that should make us very uncomfortable. Okay? Number one, Jesus is getting political here. Because a couple of the things that he's talking about are explicit references to the Roman occupiers. The slapping on one cheek thing is a way you degrade someone who's a lower class than you, and it's the kind of thing that Romans would do to um, the people they're occupying. The more explicit one is the carrying a pack for a mile. That's something that Roman officers, Roman soldiers were legally allowed to make any, um, any, occupy, any member of their occupied um, empire carry their pack for a mile. They could just grab somebody and say, I don't want to carry this, carry it for me for a mile. That's the first thing, it's Jesus is getting political. He's talking about the way they deal with their occupiers, he's not just talking about personal lives. The second uncomfortable thing is that there are no ways to wiggle out of this. Because what, what I will hear, and I think I've even taught at some point, is, there is like, that this is actually a passive-aggressive law. Like, if you, it, it's shameful to slap someone on the left cheek so you're, you're embarrassing them. Or, you know, the law said only one mile, so if you carry it two miles, you're going to get them in trouble and they're going to have to take their... Pa- That's not what Jesus is doing. There's no passive aggression here. What he is saying is that when you are dealing with people who are taking things from you respond with generosity. Give to the people who ask you. They try and take your coat, give them your shirt as well. Uh, Fulfilling the law means choosing generosity instead of vengeance. That's what he's saying. And he's he's not cutting off any kind of, he's not saying this is only in your private sphere, this isn't to do with politics, this isn't to do with this or that. He is literally covering everything and he's leaving no excuses. This is how we're supposed to interact with people. We're supposed to respond with generosity, and the hardest, the hardest example that he gives, and the one that explains all of this, is this one. You have heard that it was said, "Love your neighbor and hate your enemy." Now the law doesn't say that; it says, "Love your neighbor." It doesn't say hate your enemy, but I'm sure everybody back then was saying it. Everybody today really says it: Uh, "Love your uh, neighbor, hate your enemy." But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That phrase is really important. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Because they're supposed to be salt, right? What flavor salt are they supposed to be? They're supposed to be God-flavored salt, right? They're supposed to be revealing God to the world. So you're supposed to be different in a way that resembles God. So your love should resemble the love of God. Well, how does God love Jesus uses a great and very clear example. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If God loved the way we loved, then rain would fall like, like in Charlie Brown, where it's just a cloud following individual people around, right? Right? Like, that's what it would be like, because that's how we love, but that's not what God does. In fact, isn't it one of the most frustrating things about God, is that he doesn't restrict his love the way we wish he would, that the rain does actually fall on anyone, right? That anyone might get sunlight, that anyone's crops might grow well, regardless of how well they're following God. God loves fairly indiscriminately, and we hate that. Which is why we really hate to be told that that's how we're supposed to love. But if we don't love like that, then are we different from anyone else? Are we actually God-flavored salt? Because that's what he says. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors, aren't even the tax collectors doing that? Those would be the sinners that are breaking the law that we want to kill, right? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? The Gentiles, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect means complete. Be complete, have complete love, as complete as God's love. If you're going to be God-flavored salt, you have to love like God loves. So fulfilling the law means loving everyone God loves, including your enemies. Now, this is a really, really hard teaching which means that we have spent about 2,000 years trying to figure out every way we can get out of it. There's two most popular ways that we do that. One is to say that this is really just extra credit. This is for saints and pastors and missionaries. It's not for normal people. Okay? The other one is to say that this is hyperbole. This is an exaggeration. Um, They're actually, like, one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century, Reinhold Niebuhr, was famous, it's a great name, Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, was famous for for teaching that you can't actually build a society on the Sermon on the Mount. So it just gives us an ideal, but we have to be a bit more realistic about things. Those interpretations of the law, of the Sermon on the Mount, completely miss the point of the conclusion, the way Jesus concludes it. Here's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, and the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. If you listen to what Jesus is saying and you put it into practice, then your house will stand. And if you don't listen to what Jesus is saying and you don't, do the, you don't follow this vision that he's laying out for what it means to be God's people, and, the, and a storm comes, your house will fall. And what has Jesus been telling them as long as he's been proclaiming the gospel? Remember from two weeks ago? There is a storm coming. And when that storm hits... If your house is built on a rock, it's going to stand. And if your house is built on sand, it's going to fall. When you're talking to uh, the Jews about their house, what are they thinking about? The the house that the Jews would care most about, that they've invested everything in. There's a house that's that's, well... Let me, I don't want to give you too many spoilers because we've got one that I'm saving for a couple of weeks. But the point of what Jesus is saying here is that he warned them that following his teachings would make the difference between success and destruction. This is not idealistic. This is not naive. This is not pie in the sky. This is the difference between succeeding in the mission God's given us and, and destruction. And the interesting thing is, if you fast forward from this point in the story 40 years, and you go to Caesarea... You would find a place where there was a synagogue and a Greek man uh, who didn't like the people in the synagogue sacrificed a chicken in front of it right before the synagogue meeting, and it sparked a riot. And that riot broke out over the whole city, and that riot then turned into a full-on rebellion that engulfed all of Galilee and all of Judea and ended in the complete destruction of Galilee and Judea. And what you will find as you trace the history of the generation that Jesus is preaching to is that following this teaching or not makes a huge difference in what happens to them. This is not idealistic. This is not just good advice or exaggeration. This is what it means to be God's people. And so as we close, there's a couple of, of morals, a few morals that I want us to draw from this sermon. Number one is that the purpose of God's people is to reveal God's radical love to the world. We are meant to show the world what God is like, and the story of Israel shows us that his most defining feature is his radical love for humanity and his desire to forgive us on a level that is absurd by our standards. And we are meant to show that to the world. That's our mission, and then, so that means if you are, if you take on that mission, become part of God's people, then who you forgive is no longer a personal choice; it's a matter of policy. Who you love is not a personal choice; it's a matter of policy. And so, we are called to love the people that Jesus loves, to love the people that God loves, and you know what? God loves your enemies. Thankfully, He also loves their enemies. and that's why we're loved. If he didn't love the enemies, he wouldn't love us. And it's really important for us to understand that radical love is not naive. It's not something that, that is just idealistic. It's actually the only way to build God's kingdom. If we build a kingdom any other way, we're not building God's kingdom, we're building our own. When we, when we embrace other ways of, of accomplishing things, when we embrace other ways of treating others, we are whatever we're building, it's not the kingdom of God. And so we need to be dedicated to building God's kingdom His way. Now, if that sounds hard, then you have understood me correctly. If that sounds impossible for you to do on your own, you have understood me correctly. But... Radical love is not ultimately impossible. Jesus makes it possible for each one of us. Because Jesus doesn't just teach us a moral law. He doesn't just give us a set of rules. He actually redeems us from the power of sin and shares with us the Holy Spirit and initiates us into a body of people who are bound together to accomplish this mission. And so we have the ability, as we are given the ability as we submit to Jesus and as we are transformed by him to actually love people we would not be able to love otherwise. To actually have patience we would never otherwise have. To have mercy when we otherwise never would be able to. And so this kind of love is actually possible. And not only is it possible, but it's real and it has been transforming our world for 2,000 years and it will continue to transform our world until Jesus comes back. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that. So as we close, I'm going to invite you to consider what is the next step that God is calling you toward. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then that is definitely what he's putting on your heart today. Whether you're feeling it or not, God is calling you to give your life to him, to join his way of building the kingdom, to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Today is the best day to say yes. If you're going to say yes, you can come forward as we sing the final song. You can talk to one of the ministers after the service. You can, If you're online, you can contact the church or talk to a Christian that you know or trust. Another step you might consider taking is to join one of our small groups or a service team. These are ways to to band together with others and to support each other and to help each other to live out this really difficult calling that we have to pray for each other. And, And service teams are actually a way to love others. That's what they're built on. You can sign up for those through our connection card. The other thing you can sign up for is a connect class, which is a way to introduce you to our church, who we are, and what we do and how you can be a part of it. If you're considering being a member here, getting more involved, the Connect class is a great way to do that as well. You can check that box, and we'll contact you about scheduling one. God may be calling you to do something that I hadn't even thought of. I want your heart to be open to that as well. So as we stand and sing, please consider what is the next step for you.